Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sheila Shaw again, and this is Ready to Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognize, others you might not, but my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire challenge, educate, comfort, or simply entertain you. In this episode, I speak to author, playwright, podcaster, poet, and all-round wonderful human being, Michael Harding. Who am I is a work in progress. I am a human becoming, not a human being. And in every act I make, I become a different person. And you know and I know that when you do certain things, you are transformed by them. Yeah. And sometimes that can be in, in deep love, you know. Like, I talk about the beloved, my wife, but it's, mm. it's like because she is the beloved, she transforms me, and I, I joke not about it. Yeah. And every every partnership has the possibility for that. It, it's unbelievable that two humans can connect. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable that our self-awareness is actually able to focus on another person. Mm. And, that, and that when we focus on the other person, we forget ourselves. Michael is someone I've wanted to speak to for years, and I'm so happy that we finally got to sit down and have this conversation in time for the Christmas break. We talk about his love of religion, the power of failure, and finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. His latest book, All the Things Left Unsaid, Confessions of Love and Regret, 
is a stunning collection of letters he wrote for the people who deeply affected him over the years and it's available now in all good bookshops. He's charmingly self-deprecating, reflective and his voice is one I could listen to forever. I hope you enjoy our conversation. At this time of year, a lot of us tend to take stock of the year gone by. We're not quite there maybe sometimes to look ahead to, you know, the year that is to come, but sometimes we're kind of thinking of, oh, where am I at now? What am I, what am I doing? How am I feeling about things? So you're the perfect guest. Right. For this time, I feel, because reflection and pondering things is, it's your bag, isn't it? And making a mess of everything, (laughs) which is what people do at Christmas. Well, that's, it's all part of the learning of life, isn't it? Yeah. It's funny, I, I was wondering how long it would take you to put yourself down. Really? Yeah, Oh, yeah. that was good. <laughs> Took seconds. Seconds. Because you are probably one of the most self-deprecating people I've Am ever I? heard. Yeah, I think every time I've heard you is that chatting my, to anyone. Is that my shtick? I don't know if it's your shtick. It might be. Is you it? Know, well, not consciously, but it, you know, it might be the thing that... Is it a protection? Uh, no, it's not a protection. What do you think it is? It, it is a protection from arrogance and pride, which I would suffer from greatly. So uh, Suffer in what way? Well, I'd, I'd be prone. I, you know, I'd, I think would I would be an arrogant, uh, conceited person. And so maybe I need to put myself Do down. Do you? There I go putting myself down again, though. Interesting. <laughs> I would. That's not something I would use, probably, if ah, I yeah. thought to describe I'd say so. Would you? Yeah. But I, 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 putting myself down is, is also, it's a way of releasing yourself from pressure, right? I always, I always fail at things in life. Now, that's the truth, right? So Did you really? Yeah. I didn't get a massive, you know... Uh, points in me leaving cert and I didn't do nuclear physicist, <laughs> physics, right? Is that what you wanted to do? Uh, of course. <laughs> or, or or be a ballet dancer. But, you know, it was one of the two. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't good enough for either. And then um, the things I did in life, people said, God, you've been through a lot of careers. Yeah, but like I had a lot of failures. <laughs> I took the wrong direction about five times. There's a way of looking at it that wouldn't be like success. It would be like failure. And here's just the last point that I'm going to try and make because it's like failure is what is the road on which I learned everything. Yeah. And it really, really is. And I really believe it. And once you acknowledge I'm not perfect, you know, Okay, so I'll do the dishes and then I'll make... Do you know the way you do the dishes? The man does the dishes and the lady wife comes in and then cleans up after him. You know? <laughs> because he didn't know the pot was supposed to be washed, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, that you're not perfect can be like a good place to start from because it lets you off the pressure that you should be perfect. Yeah. And uh, I think young people under stress, as they are, huge amount of them, it's to do with the fact that there's so much affirmation of everything you know you really you know on social media and that you have to be really a star you have to be perfect you have to be like I'm so lucky to be here I'm so happy to have this you know yeah, I get like, you. like that's awful pressure really to be to be expecting positive yourself, all the time yeah to be expecting yourself to be successful and positive all the time and I think that I don't do it like with kind of a, with any kind of a angle on it it's just I feel better if I acknowledge to myself and give myself permission to fail. Yeah. And there isn't a day goes by that it doesn't happen, you know. I come up on the train and, and 
you know, I make a mistake about something. Do you know what I mean? I leave mm. me, I mean, I left me hat in the restaurant downstairs. You know, I had a cup of coffee. Yeah. You think you couldn't miss anything? You're just having a cup of coffee before you meet Sheila, you know. <laughs> and then you'd up and walk off without your fucking hat. So, but you're, yeah, but that's the thing. But you got it in the end. You remembered. Yeah, a, a lovely young woman who was at the door says, "Excuse me, how, how you fell? <laughs> <laughs> you forgot your hat." <laughs> Oh God! But you see, I suppose you see with with you, Michael, you're you're um, you're always aware, I suppose, are you, of of what you're doing and what you're about, that you pick up on things that for some of us we're not as tuned in. Is that what it is? I don't know. I, again, I'm not joking about this, and I'm mm. not being false. I yeah, there's loads of people more tuned in than me, and there's more t- people smarter than me, and you know, my position is. Just enjoying surviving and enjoying being here. And, yeah. th- and maybe I think that's why I do connect with people because people like to hear that. They, they do, because of course, they, think, yeah. they think there's somebody like them around. Yeah. There was one person shook hands with me on the street recently in Letterkenny. And uh, somebody else was with me, and the person with me said, Oh, be God, you must be a celebrity. And the fellow who was saying hello to me said, No, nah, no, he's not a celebrity. He's just well known. Yeah. Right. And there's a difference that. Yeah. It's like when somebody comes up to me in a restaurant and says, Harry Michael, they're not like if you were a celebrity, people would be saying, Is that him? Is that him over there at that table? God, look at him. Right? Yeah. But and like people come up to me You're approachable. Yeah. 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 There's a s there's a sense of the ordinary, mm. I think, about me that is what gives me some uh notoriety. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I have failed many times academically and in career and in relationship and like in money wise, you know, I went through half, most of my life without a penny, you know, you wouldn't call that successful, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I remember times when I'd come to Dublin, was it 30 years ago, and I'd go through the bookshops before the internet and I would try and read as much as I could of new books because <laughs> I hadn't, couldn't afford to buy one of them going out of the shop. You'd stand there and read them. Well, yeah, you'd flick through. You know, you'd you'd be aware of a new book, let's say by a, let's say you know a a contemporary writer or somebody, you know, whoever, a book or prize or whatever, and you'd you'd just have a good quick look at it, which would would maybe determine whether you might buy it later, but but literally, you know, I used to envy people going into bookshops buying books. Mm. You know, sometimes people. I'm not whinging now. No, I know you're not. (laughs) I know you're not. Sometimes people say, you know, we can peak at certain points in our life. Yeah. Do you feel like, you know, the last, I don't know, 20 odd years is, is your time? I, I think I'm going to peak when I'm 70. When are you 70? Next year. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's going to be your time. It's never been as good as this. Really? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. In some way, I'd say my career is behind me. You know, I, I was very blessed to get a column in the Irish Times. And I had this mad notion for years to do what I called a chronicle of ordinary life, mm. right? Mm. So I'd look at novels and I would see them kind of one after another being praised as being kind of amazing, like an amazing character or amazing plot or something. And I think I, I can't concoct that. I'd, I'd feel like it's wasting the trees, right? So I thought, like, wouldn't it be lovely to write a book which was a chronicle of ordinariness? Mm. And the one book that inspired me was there was a Mr. Peep. Mr. Peep's Diary from London in the 1650s. Okay. It's an extraordinary book. Right. It was given to me first by Steve Wickham, 
oh, man okay. in the water yeah, boys yeah. and uh, a beautiful man a great friend but at that time we used to meet regularly and we'd, he'd be playing the the, the fiddle and he'd be encouraging me to play the flute oh lovely and uh, I was playing the flute at the time and he'd say we'll have a few tunes and I, I had only very few tunes like three mm. tunes but and I'd be thinking Jesus playing with Steve Wickham I'd be able to dine out on this you know yeah yeah but he was a beautiful man. But anyway, one day he... I didn't know. Now that's another string to your bow. I didn't know you were. You're. You're yeah. obviously. You're. You're obviously pretty good at it. You're probably got to say no. no I'm no, not you're, really. You're, oh, no, no, no. I'm terrible. I'm really not. I'm terrible. <laughs> but um, anyway, he gave me this book and yeah. it's this ordinary Mister Peeps, and he's talking about things in London, like like big events, like the, the you know a coronation of 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 a new monarch. But he's also talking about the dog got sick on the kit on the floor in the kitchen, and the wife was annoyed about it. And yeah. I thought I could write like that, you know, about the ordinariness of stuff. And so I had this idea of doing a big chronicle, and I I approached I think it was Geraldine Kennedy mm. at the time, and she she went with it mm. as a column, and that turned into the books and turned into who I am. Yeah. So. So, so that was the whole business of the career, if you like, in its peak. But in another sense, in health issues, I think the more you, the more damage you get, the healthier you get. You know, if if you've been through stuff, mm. you know you've been through it. You you know that it's like you're battle hardened. Yeah, and you're more focused on the mortality issue, the kind of shortness of life. Anyway, you know, we're very fragile creatures, so. Before you have a serious illness, you go through with a little bit of anxiety, I wouldn't like to be sick. You'll hear young people saying, God, I'd hate to be sick or something. And when it happens to you, you realise it's not that it's bad. It's it's probably the best thing ever happened to you because the pain and the wound and the suffering opens you up in a different way. And you begin to understand your life in different ways. And I think that happened to me. And it started in 2011. Um and I, I won't go through the litany now, like a, a bore at a dinner party telling you all my illnesses. But virtually from 2011 until 2022, I've had one thing after another. And different stuff. Yeah, totally, Harsh. totally unexpected yeah, 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 different yeah. stuff. Different stuff. Yeah. And now I feel good. Brilliant. I think it gives you perspective. And okay. I think that there's nobody listening to this podcast who doesn't know that. Absolutely. Because, because everybody has something. Everybody is tinged with some other thing, whether it's emotional, sure. psychological, physical or social, mm-hmm. which is a new thing now. Do you know what I mean? That in some sense, you're collateral damage to somebody else's damage. Yeah. So that you're kind of suffering because you have a loved one maybe has a serious illness or, or, or because it's some other stuff. But like there's nobody doesn't understand what you're saying, that that pain or suffering not to be focused on in itself. It's not like that you kind of dwell on mortality, but it's, it gives perspective to the joy of life. Mm. It, it's like the, the, the sense of being grateful or being lucky to be alive really starts to come out of you. Yeah, so I know faith is is at the core of your being. And I was even afraid to ask this question because I was going to say you were a priest, but I believe you might correct me with that. I know. I, I, well, I do. And it's nerdy. Like, this is nerdy now. People will say, oh, you were a priest. And then I'll say, well, I am a priest, technically. Yeah, you're still a priest. Only in this sense. I'm only being grumpy when I say this. <laughs> you know, really, really. You're just it being contrary. It doesn't matter. Okay, yeah. okay. But I'm being contrary on the following point. Yeah. That I suppose I, 
I genuinely had a sense that it was possible to be a priest, to be a writer in a in a modern, really modern kind of liberation theology church that was emerging in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And there was an expectation that married priests and women priests would come quite soon. Once the Pope at the time passed away, the whole idea is that the Vatican Council would continue and we were having an enormous reformation within the Roman Church. So this is pre-John Paul II? All the way pre-John Paul II. Yeah. And that was the time that I left social work. I'd been a social worker and a teacher mm. and I left it to go to a seminary because I thought, you know, this is going to be a terribly exciting time. What year was that so? Uh, 76. Okay. I resigned the job in the social services in Sligo and went into Maynooth. Yeah. And it's going to be an exciting time. And I did four years seminary theology. Mm. And just when I was about to be ordained, John Paul II became Pope. Yeah. And so from that day onwards, and I've made it clear different aisle interviews and documentaries, you know, he created a church where people like me couldn't belong. Mm-hmm. But but that wouldn't mean that I lost my faith. So if I then said, oh, well, uh, I made a mistake being a priest, so I'll get out and hand it back, that would be like saying, well, he's all right, I'm wrong. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I, my faith wasn't changed because the institution went politically conservative. That's That happened. So I'm just stuck. There. I mean, there was no place for me within it, and I have been absolutely outside it totally and completely since. I was four years yeah. in the ministry, and again, there were beautiful you know, a privilege to minister to people at that level where, you know, they were in grief. Usually it was funeral after funeral in mm. rural Ireland. And so you're close to people who are in grief. And then I worked in America for three years in Florida and that was for three months. And that was absolutely amazing was I, yeah. to be working out there. And um, then I, 1984, I decided to go, started writing a book called Priest and went down to McCarrig that summer, met Cathy Carman and uh, finished off the next year to finish. I wanted to do four years in ministry because I got four years free education. Okay. And I said it before I was ordained, I said it to the bishop in Calvin, um, you know, when John Paul became Pope, the way the institution is going to be doesn't make any sense to me, so I'm going to have no place in it. So I really shouldn't get ordained. Mm -hmm. And he said, go ahead and be ordained and we'll see how it goes. And it was like he was thinking maybe, you know, give him a Volkswagen and a car. Like, he's a young fella, he'll, he'll settle down, he'll shut up. Mm-hmm. Right? But I didn't. I, I did four years in the ministry. It was a privilege and exactly when it was over. Not caused by, you know, meeting the beloved who I did meet in 1984, but, but entirely to do with the lifespan that I'd said, I'll do four years, did the four years, and then wrote to him and said, I'm retiring. I hear you, yeah. Didn't And, and stressed to him, in a letter that I hadn't lost my faith. I believed every single thing I did when I was ordained a priest on that day, but there's no place for me in this church. Was that upsetting? No, it wasn't. Not at all. No, I was as light as a feather. I took a bicycle. I I took a bicycle on the back of a bus to Dublin. So it was joyous? It was pure joyous, yeah. And then I was in Dublin for about seven years having an amazing time. You know, I had like five plays in the Abbey and I was totally in the middle of the theatre scene and, oh, Jesus, I had a great time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Cathy, she was a sculptor. She had Temple Bar Studios. You know, we were we'd be hanging around Temple Bar at a time when, in the whole of Temple Bar, there was it was just derelict buildings where there was artists in studios mm. and one single coffee shop. 
There was a coffee shop called Fillers, if anybody mm. remembers it. And that's all there was in Temple Bar. It's yeah. unbelievable. Isn't it? Yeah. And there was great artists. And, and I'd met, you know, I had great friendship, people like Nick Miller, who's a painter in, in Sligo. And that's where we met. And we'd have great evenings. Yeah. So I had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. And then after six or seven years, I lived in Stony Batter. I lived in, where else? Oakley Road in, in Randall, the usual spots. And then... Um, I was going down the country, went down the country about 91 and then, so that was kind of, it was like one of those choices in a relationship where we'd been hanging out together for about seven years and having an intensely romantic Mm. sort of affair. But uh, time comes when you say, what happens next, you know? Mm. And we we said, why don't we get married? Mm. I don't think I've ever heard a conversation with you where religion hasn't come into the conversation. Yeah. As I suppose, it's so intertwined with who you yeah, are. Yeah, Um My my going into the priesthood, you see, was a mistake. Okay. Like, that that's a, an example of how you talk about failure. That if you look at what happened, and by the way, I think there's a huge connection between the hiding of stuff over those 40 years and the fact that they went in that direction in 1970s. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that when you set up a conservative system, yeah. Where you're saying to all the middle management, I want a clean shop, lads. Well, of course, everybody's terrified to tell you that the shop is not clean. Yeah. Right? And that kind of dishonesty is what comes out of sometimes an authoritarian conservative system. And that is really what did ferocious damage. Mm. The abuse and then the hiding of the abuse. Yeah. And the maintaining of the abuse. Okay. So I was gone from 1984 and I could see the writing on the wall on it. And I wrote like three plays about it and mm. one book. And it was like people were tired of me writing plays like that. And I felt I need to write all this stuff out and then move on. Mm. But but you could say that I made a mistake and I would say that I made a mistake. It's one of the examples where you say, well, you know, that institution was in decline. So it wasn't a smart move joining up with them. But in another sense... But it wasn't in decline in the 70s. It was. It was. It was. It was finished. It's funny because then, you know, I was born in 79, the year right. that, that, you know, John Paul yeah. II came to Ireland. And, and then you look at the, the, the last Pope's visit, it's like night and day. When you look at the difference between the turnouts, yeah. it felt like there was still such a... In 79. In 79. Yeah. Well, I did, I did an interview one time for a documentary a 10th anniversary of the Pope. Mm. And I said I would agree to the interview so long as you interviewed me in the graveyard in Minute. Okay. Because I wanted to say that the 79 visit was the funeral of Catholicism. All right. And I said that in 1989, 10 years after the, yeah. the visit, because that's what it was. And I, it was it was clear to, I would say, a lot more than me in the 70s that if you weren't tackling... The, the the desire for married priests and women priests, if mm. you weren't tackling the need to change the model from an authoritarian one to a communal, more socialist, more kind of liberation theology business, if, if you weren't prepared for the radical changes that would have allowed the community of church to breathe in a more relevant way in the times that we're living in, then it was over. Mm. It was clear. And once 
people elected a pope that was getting huge crowds and huge praise, but but for 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 sentimental reasons, like like oh he's going to, you know the the priests are going to put back on their uniforms and everything is going to be good. Of course, it wasn't going to mm, be good. Mm. It was falling apart, and you know the book Priest that I wrote about it came out in 1986. Yeah, you know. But I think that there was a strange forgetfulness in the younger people who grew up from 79 onwards. The, 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 the amazing power of the John Paul papacy was that from 79 onwards, young people grew up thinking this has always been the church. So there was a kind of a, a continuum between 1950s Ireland and 1980s Ireland. Yeah, yeah. And nobody quite knew that in the 70s there was this huge wobble of the conservative church, where it seemed as if it was about to fall apart. So that you had, for example, priests who were in relationship, uh, like a, you get a lecturer who's a priest who was sharing his life with a woman, mm-hmm. who's still lecturing in, in the seminary. Yeah, There was a place called Mount Oliver. It was a catechetical institute, you know, teaching teachers to be teaching religion. Yeah. It was in Dundalk, and it was a very enlightened place. It was closed down. Mm. It's for, it's forgotten. It was erased from history. And and the the, the theologians that we studied in the seventies in Maynooth, mm. and you can name them like people like Leonardo Boff, Hans Kung, uh, Gutierrez, Segundo, Corin. These were huge iconic names in the seventies as very enlightened theologians who were trying to kind of, if you like, repackage the spiritual message of the church so that the people in contemporary society could actually hear it. And they were within like three or four years of 1979, they were all banned. So they were taken off the shelf. I I used to be astonished that by 1984, the people that I had been taught... Hmm in the seminary were now banned. Yeah, wow. And and there was no, because the mainstream of culture was moving away from the church anyway, it's like nobody was really interested, mm-hmm. right? So the big issue at the time would have been that sense that, that there's huge things on the agenda for women that need to be sorted out. And that the way that the church had been fitcha-fucha in the construction of that, Catholic state meant that when you wanted to break away from it, people wanted to say, well, that's irrelevant. So, you know, the, it wasn't a, a very sexy conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because because spirituality, because, because people would want to move to, well, what about conditions for women? What about the oppression of women? They were the, they were the real issues. Mm. And I could certainly understand that too and still do. You know, and and maybe in some way spirituality becomes a minority interest for the moment. Mm. But um, there you go. It's, it's always been my interest. Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. I know, I know you've said, you know, you are, you know, you're a Christian. You identify with Christianity and also yeah. Buddhism, and at the moment studying and exploring Islam in a, in a deep way. A little, yeah, yeah. So hum- Humbly listening to a, a friend who's Islamic and who's a very erudite okay. young man. Yeah. But let, just to parse it out, I suppose, it's like 
I ended up in the mid-80s realising the institutional work, the institutional church, is in bits. Mm. But I felt there were stories to be told, and I told as many as I could tell. And then the kind of fiction writers or the, the, the dramatists got kind of outmaneuvered by the revelations of history. You know, that, that history kind of outpaced the storyteller so that it became it became journalism that was the centre of storytelling in, in the whole 90s. You know, the, the, the revelations of what had been going on in yeah, child abuse and yeah, all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah. And then in those years, I had just retired to being a writer, a storyteller, and having a family, and I was very happy. And I thought when I was 40, you need some sort of psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And it came to me genuinely on a day where I felt like it was anger. I, I felt anger at a particular friend. And I got angry with somebody in a way that I'd never kind of got angry when I was 30. And it was just like over a drink. Like we were having a drink. And but and I didn't hit him or anything. But I thought, Jesus, I'm getting fucking too angry with people, right? Right. So I said, There's, I need to, you know, you're 40. You need to sort yourself out. So I couldn't afford a therapist at 60 euros an hour at the time. Mm. But I wouldn't have wanted to go anyway because I had a great trust in, in Buddhism as psychotherapy. Okay. I had a great trust that if you could get a really good teacher within the Buddhist tradition, we have been using psychotherapy for about 100 years in the West, but in Asia they've been using it for a 1,000 years. Mm-hmm. And there happened to be a lama, a Tibetan lama living over in West Calvin, mm. uh, who's still there. Pension neutral Rinpoche and I decided I'm going to go over there and it will satisfy not just the sense of mind training psychotherapy, mind training is just the same thing it'll, it'll satisfy that for me it will help me to you know, try and make efforts to improve how I am as a human being by meditation or whatever mm. but it also will satisfy almost like this surface propensity I have for incense and bells and candles mm, you know mm-hmm. and and there's no answer in that I, I used, always loved the church I, I loved the sensuality of it and I loved the theatricality of it the ritual yeah yeah and I saw it as theater yeah I just adored it it was like I, I you could leave me in churches when I was 12 years of age for an hour I'd be sitting there watching the little flickering red lamp glowing and thinking god it's beautiful like maybe when I was in four years in ministry, mm. people might say, you know, oh, he's great because I was, you know, maybe a good performer. Yeah. But I would have known even then, but like, it's not about performance and it shouldn't be about performance. Yeah, okay. And, and ritual is where the individual and the personality is completely dissolved into uh-huh. the formality so that the guy then, the woman or man in a ritual who's, let's say, moving the incense or moving a book across the space. You're just a conduit? Exactly. Exactly. You you became, you become almost like the vessel that holds the psyche of every mm. individual in the church. Yeah. So every individual, their psyche is actually embodied in the ritual. Yeah. Well, if the guy is facing you and talking to you and being cool and swingy, it, it's it's hard to be prayerful in the way that I'm talking about it. Yeah. Right? Yes, yeah. And like everything I've said about the church, and I know endlessly if, if I talk like this, 
I'll always get kind of cross letters from various parts of the country, you know, telling me that I should, you know, get a Jesuit to exercise me. Okay. Oh, <laughs> I'm not joking. I had that last week. Did you? Yeah, you should get yourself exercised. <laughs> preferably, Stop. preferably by a Jesuit. And All right. They know what they're doing, do they? Yeah, and it'd be like addressed to Mike and Harding, writer, Leitrim. <laughs> and it gets to you. <laughs> oh, it does. They all get. I but, love it. But because of that, you see, it's, it's important to say. How do you feel when you get that kind of stuff? I laugh. Do you? I do. Okay. I do. Because, and you know, during the, the, the what was it? The, uh, the Eighth Amendment, mm. uh, which I campaigned for. Mm-hmm. changing the Eighth Amendment and I, I, I pushed it out there and, you know, did a video that really went kind of viral around the place and I hope was a help yeah. to people realising it's time to change that amendment. Yeah. But it wasn't that... It, you can be something like that. You can say the things I'm saying about the church and you don't want to hurt the conservative person that's still there feeling that everybody's down on us. Mm. And I always then try and say that, like, I'm actually a person of faith. I'm a person who really believes in the beautiful truth and mystery of the church. So don't feel afraid if I'm just saying, sociologically, we kind of made a few mistakes in the 20th century. Yeah. You know? They did in the 19th century as well. In the, Liam Ryan, who was a professor of sociology, he used to always say that the church lost the working classes in the 19th century and it lost the women in the 20th century. Mm. That's simply a sociological fact. So it's not like, that's not a kind of a, a reflection that, you know, somebody is against the church. Yeah. It's actually somebody trying to help the church to say, as I've been saying for 40 years, yep. that institution's not working, mm, folks. Mm. And it's so not working that I, as somebody who still thinks I'm a priest, like, internally, yeah, wouldn't step inside the door for the past 40 years. See, right? I, find, I find that fascinating. I find yeah. it fascinating also that you identify with Christianity and and Buddhism because, you know, I suppose one at the one of the core values, I, I would imagine, excuse my ignorance, right? Mm. But when I think of Buddhism, I think of the beautiful concept of reincarnation mm. as one of the, the cornerstones of their belief. Mm. Um, when I think Christianity or Catholicism, I'm thinking heaven, hell, mm. the idea that we don't come back again, but we go to, we usually, if we're good, we go to the place above, or if we're bad, we go to the place below. To finish on Buddhism in relation to me, I, I began it by psychotherapy. Yeah. And it satisfied my love of ritual. Mm. And it did so for 25 years and still does. Yeah. And I got from it techniques that I'd never heard of in the Christian church. Yeah. You know, and even te- techniques that help me be mindful, help me to meditate, help me to to actually begin to pray, even though Buddhism is not a revealed religion. Buddhism is just therapy. It's just philosophy. It's yeah, just psychology. Yeah, yeah. There's no revelation in it, right? So the way that Greek philosophy was once used to kind of give a vocabulary to explain Christianity, I think that in the future... In the next 100, 500 years, you will see Buddhism more and more being used as a, as a wonderful methodology to use in order to express the mysteries of Christianity. Yeah, beautiful, yeah. Like, like, for example, 
if you if, if old fashioned people talked about the Eucharist and they said this was the real presence or that this was an act of transubstantiation. So transubstantiation, you're you're dealing with Greek concepts mm-hmm. that no Jew or Aramaic of the time of Jesus would understand what you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we use Greek philosophy to kind of channel what we mean by the Christ event. And in the same way, Christianity, I think, now has become internalised by people. The time of the institutions is over. The age of the institution is finished. And people see the the institutions emptying and they think, oh, this is the end of Christianity. And it's not. It's the beginning. It's, it's, It's a huge growth of spiritual energy that people are awakening and realizing there's something really new getting born inside. And it is the the way to embody the Christian narrative and how do we talk about it, we use very often philosophical terms that we get from Asia. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's a really positive. And so in that sense, when you come to the thing about uh, heaven and hell, it's like there's different ways about talking about the ultimate nature of being here. Being here now, very Buddhist, very Thich Nhat Hanh, here I am, here are you. Yeah, yeah. And we're present. Yeah. But what's the nature of being here? What is the nature of that existential awareness? And in Buddhism, they will say that the center of that is in some sense your awakened mind, your Buddha mind, your the Buddha cheated, the ultimate and complete compassion. Mm-hmm. We would say it's God. Or we, Western Christians would say it's God. Mm-hmm. The, the two are really just a slight tweaking of the world. Saying the same thing. Yeah come to the thing of heaven and hell versus reincarnation, both are really trying to express the notion that what happens now happens on the surface. I can see the microphone, I can see your face, I can see your eyes, you can see my beard and bottle of water on the table. But at at a deeper level, there's a real exchange, there's a real reality to being here now that's more than just what we can see. And even people listening. It's why radio is so powerful that sometimes in radio, people are actually experiencing a real sense of awareness as they listen. And it's like, it's invisible. So what's the ultimate end of that when your body dies, when when mortality comes? And every institution, every civilization ever, through religion or philosophy, has always said, there's something in here that's unbreakable by death. You can't just say it vanishes at death. So how do how do we name it? Mm-hmm. And all religions do something in sim- similar, and that is they use the idea that there's some kind of justice. In in Buddhism, they call it karma, mm-hmm. and they say that your your actions will follow you like your shadow. I love that, like your shadow. You're not going to get rid of what you do. What you do makes you who you are. You become yourself through your actions. So you reinvent yourself, you recreate yourself every second in Buddhism. You go through the bardo every second of your life. You go through this transformative moment where every new action has a possibility to create you new. And that ultimately that's the journey that will end in the completion of happiness. And Christians say the same. Mm -hmm except they just use heaven and hell. They use heaven as the kind of promise, that sense of hope that my mother and people that I loved 
have passed away and they are in some way still real, still present Mm -hmm. in some bliss of God. Even though their whole identity may be shattered, but that there's something deep within them that is preserved as as their true self. And if that be the case, then in some way it's connected with your good actions. So the consequence would be that your bad actions would be unbearably awful that that to end up negating the bliss of the godhead would be hell mm-hmm. and there's it was somebody pointed out to me recently and i never knew this the christian tradition including catholics they believe in hell but under catholic dogma or whatever there's nobody in hell right there's nobody in hell isn't that amazing yeah. Yeah. Nobody. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I think it's me. I only learned that about a week ago. Well, I only learned it now. Yeah. That it's 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 presented as a potential of self-destruction. Hmm. And even though in Victorian days and in, you know, various medieval days when, when there was a lot of nasty stuff going on and you can put it down to the black death or ignorance or whatever you want, but um, that's the context within which people described it and it got into a whole lot of mess of, you know, Jesuits frightening the wits out of mm. everybody that, you know, they were all going to born in hell. Mm. The Jesuits, I need to do the exorcism. And you that's right. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. So where do you go when it is that you take your last breath? I, okay, if you talk about the afterlife, you're talking about a linear experience. Mm -hmm. So my life started in 1953, it ends whenever, Uh and then people talk about the afterlife, meaning on the day after your funeral, like my mother in 2012, July 27, so did she go to heaven? Was she in heaven on July 28th? 
And of course, it's an absurd question when you look at it like that, because yeah. you realise that what you're talking about in the sense of eternity, it transcends time. Mm-hmm. And maybe Einstein and maybe quantum physics have given us enough kind of sense that there is a depth of being here now that transcends time, that never, that is deeper. It's, it's what in Islam they call the imaginal realm. The imaginal realm is the deep truth of who you are in all its imagery. It's a beautiful idea. Yeah, say that again. The imaginal realm is, is your deepest, truest self. It, it exists beyond where we are at the surface level. And that is the home that you will never leave and you will go home to. As Rumi says, whoever brought me here will bring me home. Mm, we're, yeah. we're here like, don't yeah. think of it in, in, in a linear terms. Think of it in like uh, depth terms, mm. that, that we're here at the surface. We're like, we're like beautiful fish from deep down and we come to the surface and we're on the surface for a while and then we're going to dive way back down into our deepest being. Mm. That is who we are in union with all the kind of enlightened consciousness of the cosmos. That's, and that's very beautiful. Well, that's that's me and me, our religion, you know. I and, think and that all religions that, are beautiful. You find beauty in all religions. Oh, I do. I really do. And I'm astonished by things that I learned from, from Islam about the imaginal realm or, yeah. you know, about, I remember one day, I won't say his name because he's in Ireland. He's, sure. he's from a war-torn area and he's a, a very erudite man. But I remember one time we were talking about the Quran and he says, the Quran as we have it now in your hand is not the Quran. The Quran is in heaven. God speaks the Quran to God. And this is is how it manifests on earth. Mm-hmm. So again, it's it's like thinking of everything at the surface and then everything having this depth. That most, it's like we're all icebergs. We, th- we, th- we think this is real, mm. but there's a depth to us that is absolutely unfathomable. And that's what no scholar, no rational mind can approach. You have to use ritual and you have to use prayer. Meditation. And meditation and chanting and incense and worship. All that grammar. Mm. You get it in every civilization. And yeah. it's an aspect of being human. And that, I think, is, is is good for your mental health. So when we pair it all back and we go back far enough, is there a universal religion, for want of a better word, that connects all of us? No, I don't think so. No? I don't think so. And I, I, I think that, I, you know, who knows? We might be... A lot of people think, you know, we're on, you know, the last five minutes of, you know... Yeah, yeah. The clock is ticking and we're all going to explode and it's over. But we might actually be on the first minute. Mm-hmm. The first 14 billion years might be just actually the first minute. But is that the glass half full or the glass half empty kind of? I, I'm the glass half full. Yeah. There's Have no, you always there's been no, like that? Yeah, but I, I think that is a kind of a, almost a moral choice to believe. Mm. So no matter what you believe in, I was going to say that that the future may, may, may see new religious traditions emerging. There, there may be new moments of what in religion they call revelation. There may be amazingly beautiful stuff. And uh, people talk about, let's say, even the, you know, the return of Christ in glory. That's an anticipation that there's no limits to the possibility of human evolution. Yeah. Where we're going with this. We, we haven't a clue. So 
I would certainly be open to everything new that happens, but I would also feel that um, the way we have it now is very good for your mental health. Mm. Who is Michael Harding without religion? I don't know, and I don't even know who he is with religion. Like, <laughs> no, I really don't. Really? I really don't. Who is Michael Harding? Sure, I, who, I suppose who are... It's so like... If I, yeah, so the who are you question. Yeah, like there'd be, there's a brand. There's a fella called Michael Harding and he's only a brand. It's me when I'm on the telly. Me well, you said a, it there at the beginning when I called you up on, you know, there you are putting yourself down, you know, being self-deprecating. And, and you said, is that my shtick? Yeah. Is that part of the brand, the Michael Harding yeah, brand? Yeah, yeah. So when you take all that stuff away... Who are you? Who am I is a work in progress. I am a human becoming, not a human being. And in every act I make, I become a different person. And you know and I know that when you do certain things, you are transformed by them. Yeah. And sometimes that can be in, in deep love, you know. Like, I talk about the beloved my wife but it's, mm. it's like because she is the beloved she transforms me and I, I joke not about it yeah. and every every partnership has the possibility for that it, it's unbelievable that two humans can connect it's unbelievable Yeah, it's unbelievable that our self-awareness is actually able to focus on another person mm. and that and that when we focus on the other person we forget ourselves it's unbelievable Mm-hmm. And it's transformative, and that's like good sex is that. It is that just I forgot myself. Yeah. You know, I forgot yeah. I forgot what I was doing mm. because I was in the middle of flight. I was being, but it was transformed by focusing on the other. Mm. And death or suffering can have the same effect that grief can have it. That that in those moments you become transformed. Like, if you think of somebody who's in grief, in Irish, at a wake, the, the Farah that's so strong in Irish culture, and the bereaved is there, and you go in and you shake their hand and you say, I'm sorry for your trouble. And she says, Michael, it was very good of you to come. And then she tells you how he died. And it's a story. Yeah. And then the next person comes in, they say, I'm sorry for your trouble. And she says, you were very good to come. And then she tells the story. And over and over and over and over again the whole night she's telling the same story. Mm-hmm. And she might change it a little bit. She or he, he might change it a little bit. He might edit it. He, he might put in more details and take out details. But the very dynamic of telling this story and feeling the kind of care from the person who's shaking your hands is changing, transforming that person in the journey of grief. So, so everything we yeah. do, everything we do changes us. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that, that's why I don't want to get into morality, but that, you know, you know, that's why people end up, you can't avoid morals in your life. Because mm. you know that actions sometimes are kind of unselfish and they make you happy. It's crazy. Yeah. And a lot, so... So who am, who's Michael Harding? He, he, he changes from day to day and sometimes he's sad, depressed, sometimes he's grumpy, sometimes he's too ecstatic, sometimes he gets too high and sometimes he's just quiet and sitting there looking at an icon. 
I'm a different person every day. I want to I want to talk to you about your latest book because we haven't got to it yet. <laughs> oh, my latest book. Yeah. And it's um, all the things left unsaid, confessions of love and regret. And it's it's very beautiful. It's very powerful. And I'd love you to tell the, the listener, um, I suppose, why you decided to do it. Well, I, the story of it first, just the simple story yeah. is I was in hospital Again, mm. I had an operation. I was very worried about it. It was nearly one of the worst because I was afraid I would have permanent damage that would leave me, you know, that yeah. I might not be able to walk too well. And um, it was a success. So I was hugely relieved. And the relief and the need for sort of rest and rehabilitation, I thought the best thing I could do is there was a place in Donegal I could gain access to a house and have it for the year and be there. And I thought, nice place to go and close the door, leave the family now, leave everybody of a Monday morning, go off to Donegal, up to West Donegal and learn Irish mm. and walk on the beach at Maharorte and sit in the evenings in the quietness of a house that's like a beautiful old house. It was built, like I'd said, 200 years ago. It was originally a huge big old cottage, renovated a few times. And so it's full of ghosts. It is full of good, beautiful ghosts. And I thought it would be a sanctuary to sit in. And just like a cat that's a sore foot, hmm. just stay in there and rest. Yeah. And so I did that and I got writing because I can't stop writing. And I thought, my editor was saying, why don't we do a book of, of letters? And I thought, that's a good idea. I sat down to write the letters. And the first letter I wrote, I think, was to... I was thinking I, was, I might write to a woman, Marjorie Cross, who's a beautiful, uh, great woman who started jumping Tibetan Buddhist Centre. And I said, oh, I'll write to Marjorie. But I put, like, three sentences into it. And I said, this is ridiculous, because if I was writing to Marjorie, I'd write to her. Like, she's there. Uh-huh, Yeah. And then, almost in the same breath, it was as if somebody walked in and sat down a ghost. Right. And I'd look in his face and I'd recognise him. And he's saying, like, why don't you write to me? I'd be thinking, but you're, you're dead, you've passed on. And then I thought, you know, that's who I need to write to. Yeah. To say things that I couldn't say. Mm. And one led to another, accidentally, because... There was a link between them. Tom Hickey is one of the people I write in the book. He was best man at my wedding. Was he? Yeah. As in Benji from the Reardons? Yeah. Wonderful and, Tom and then, yeah. And then I looked at the photograph and I thought, Mary McPartland was the bridesmaid. Okay. And she did the music. Yeah. And she'd passed away in the same two years. Hmm. And one of the first people into the, the church that morning because myself and Cathy had met in Anna McCarrig, was Bernard Lachlan. Okay. And he had passed away. And it was like, my goodness. Like the, everybody that was on the altar. Okay. Be, between, beside the two of us, mm. the three of them were all gone. And the priest was Father Pat O'Brien. And he had passed away. Mm. And one after another, the kind of one led to another. 
emotionally wanting to, to say to them what I didn't say. And, and it was just that simple urge to say thank you in a way that I never said it to certain people because I didn't expect them to pass away. Yeah. And then with Tom Hickey, mm. I did expect him to pass away. He was, you know, he was in a nursing home. But COVID was there two years and you just keep putting off any sense of having a... I went to visit him once, but I, I, I felt bad then at the funeral. You know, I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't really visiting them. And, and each one of them, it was a sense that Mary McPartland was the same, a beautiful singer, gifted woman, uh, T.G. Cahar work, just, just such a beautiful, exceptional human being. Mm. And she had been so good to me as a positive. She was like a sister. Like from, I knew her when I was 21. I knew her in Sligo when I was working in Sligo. Mm. And she was there. And she was such an encourager to me, to other writers, to musicians. Her whole life, talk about somebody who got joy out of making other people happy. You would see the delight in Mary McPartland's face mm. as she'd be telling you how she had managed to do something good for some fiddle player or flute player. And... Uh, she was she was ill in hospital for a couple of months, and again because of COVID, it was excruciating. I'm, I'd imagine for her family, and then she passed away, and so I I, I just kept feeling this simple sense that I'm alive, mm. and I feel so grateful. I want to share that emotion, and the book was like no other book I ever wrote. It it was just pure emotion it was just pure I just flew out of me yeah. one letter to another uh, of saying just thank you did you feel a release I did writing the letter oh yeah. I did yeah it sounds like it would be a practice that um, a lot of people could get something from in their lives if yeah. particularly for if, if somebody has passed and if they felt like they didn't get to say a, a proper goodbye Sounds like writing a letter to somebody as as a simple self-care practice yeah. could be really beneficial. Yeah, I think it would be very therapeutic. Very therapeutic. And I know it's used in therapy mm. in relation to situations, let's say, where somebody has been abused uh -huh. and you've never been able to get sort of, you know, kind of justice. Mm. And then the person passes away. And I know that in some cases, a therapist might help the person, the survivor, to write mm -hmm. and to write a letter to the abuser and, and to, you know, affirm yourself and say, you did this to me and it was wrong. So there's no doubt that speaking the truth to power and speaking the truth to anybody in any situation is healthy therapeutically for yourself. So therefore, it seems to me that there's one we could miss as well, and that is the sense of gratitude. Mm. You know, even with somebody, and I'll give you... Well, I won't give you the exact example because the person, they're passed away, but I don't want to name them. But I know somebody who's very close to me who's 50-50. Like 50% not a nice person and 50% a lovely person. Okay. And I know that most of the time I just dwelt on the 50 negative. And one time, and this, now I didn't write a letter to this person, uh... But I remember one, this is a relation, but I remember one time, well, this is my mother, to be honest with you. Okay. You know, like my mother could be hard going. 
Yeah. Right? And as she got old, she was lonely and she could be very hard going. Mm. And you'd be just like fed up trying to relate to her. And that's what you'd be remembering. But when I sat down, this is 10 years ago, and when I sat down to think about her and I, I listed all the things she had done for me and all the, the things she had done for other people, God, I realised she was a lovely woman, a beautiful woman. You know, it, it's yeah. so... It's, sometimes it's so sad that we miss in our parents the lives they had that we didn't know about. So our, our, our agenda is always, well, she didn't do much for me or something. Mm -hmm. And then you look back on the life and you realise... She had her own worries, she had her own love affair, she had her own romance, her own dreams and hopes and disappointments, and then her own loneliness. You know, and when you get into the good things that somebody did... It gives you compassion. It, it, it give, well, it give, makes you feel better yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So if you had any sense of, of guilt over not seeing people through COVID, which was like, I'm sure you're speaking for so many people listening now who are in similar situations, um, I would imagine they dissolved away through the process. I think letters. so. Yeah, great. Yeah, I think so. And it, it also, I don't know what it does. Like that book is taken people who I admired and who had done something huge for me in my life. Mm. That's... How you get into that book mm. was they were a huge life changing person for me. Yeah. And as you I mean, spoke about through this conversation, you're constantly evolving, transforming yeah. through your experiences, yeah. through exactly. interactions with exactly. people. Exactly. Yeah. And they all played somebody, their part. Somebody like Bernard Lachlan, if he had not been there as an encourager to me as a writer when I was 30 and, and allowed me into Anna McCarrick, I would not be here today. I would have not been able to open the door. Yeah. 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 So if, if it sounds like, as you said, gratitude is also at its core. Are, were there any letters to people that you felt perhaps had a, had a negative impact on your life that you felt like, I need to get this off my chest. I need to write this letter. No. No. Interesting, isn't it? No. That's lovely. Yeah. But it's, That's lovely. it's true. Yeah. Um, the big 7-0 is uh, coming up next year. Yeah. I'll be peaking. You'll be peaking. Come on, let's talk about the peak. Because like I'm, I if this has, if you haven't peaked already, oh, what are I'm, we in for? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I haven't a clue. I mean, I'm still, you know, I was lucky to get out of the last trap, mm. mm -hmm. health wise. Yeah. Okay. Like I'm, I'm still on, you know, our painkillers and, yeah, you know, seven other tablets for. You know, the nerves that would have been damaged in the spine when they were trying to get out an artery. And um, the first time they did the operation, they weren't successful. So they actually had to have a second go. Mm. And that was scary. Like three months later, they're saying there's a 70% chance of success. Which meant to me, that's 30% chance of failure. Mm -hmm. And failure meant catastrophe. Yeah. I got out of that. I'm so grateful to... Just be alive. I come up on the train. You've no idea that I, I couldn't do this for the past four years with, with all that stuff, you know. To be able to just be healthy and walk around, I feel grateful for it. Yeah. And what am I going to do when I'm 70? I'm going to celebrate that. You want to have a big party? No, I'm not. I'm going to go on a retreat. Lovely. Yeah, I love going on retreats. Yeah. Which go away on my own. Yeah. And the lady wife was saying that 
you know, she said, what do you want to be about? <laughs> and uh, I said, I don't know. And she said, what about uh, Mull or Iona? They're monasteries up in... Yeah, yeah. I said, uh, yeah, we, we could go up there all right. And she said, no, I meant you. <laughs> <laughs> I realised she wants to send me away <laughs> on my own. But she knows that you appreciate yeah, yeah, yeah. solitude. Yeah, and it, it'd be a way of her affirming my solitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because she does. I mean, she's working on sculpture. She's a... She has her studio where the house is, right? Mm. And a sculptor can't work without the studio. Yeah. So in the same way, as, like, the writer can go to Donegal for you know, the week and take the computer. But a sculptor can't really do that in the same mm. way. Mm. But um, I think she affirms when I go away into my solitary moments. And I think that I'd love to go on a trip with the two of us uh, somewhere that would bring me like on a pilgrimage. Mm. And I think it would be probably something to do with orthodoxy, you know, Greece, Romania. So sometimes I do think because the orthodox is very much the original, you know, when they do the liturgy, when they do their divine service, if 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 John Chrysostom came back from a thousand years ago and walked in the door, he would completely recognize what's happening. OK, yeah. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed, virtually back to, you know, the time of Christianity starting. And so to understand my own culture as mm. a Christian, mm. I sometimes think that our Christianity is, is very damaged by the damage of being Irish. In other words, that we're so traumatised mm. from so many things that happened in our history. Yeah. Through famines and... Oppression is a strong word, colonial yeah, yeah. influence of, of British or, or Roman, because the Roman church was also a colonial take over of what was for 700 years the indigenous mm. church on the island, you know. Mm, mm. And those 700 years is an amazing time. Yeah. The Book of Kells and the culture yeah. and all the rest of it. So it's like sometimes I think that the whole damage that we endured through the 20th century in Ireland is kind of like it's contextualised by where we come from in our history and that there there could be a really interesting thing for me personally just to to see what, what how did the Russians imagine it? How did the Greeks imagine mm. the Christian evolution? I'm getting a bit lost there, but... You're not, but I suppose you're, it seems like you're somebody who is constantly searching for answers or meaning. I think if if I imagine, if I went on a little holiday next summer, if I mm. went on a tour, yeah. I think I'd like to make a pilgrimage and I think I'd like to go to somewhere where Christianity started. Yeah. Like probably around the Greek area and to do that because... Not even that I'm trying to find meaning. I love the rituals. Yeah, yeah. And I love the ritual of the Orthodox. Mm. Yeah. So back in 2020, and we were back and forth on email, not with you directly, um, trying to organise a chat and it was going to be remote. And I'm so glad 
I was devastated at the time because I really wanted to talk to you. And obviously we couldn't meet face to face and it never happened. But here we are today and yeah. I have taken so much from this conversation and I really feel that every ha- everything happens when it's meant to happen. Yeah. So I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to travel and be here today. I'd love to chat to you for another hour, but I will wrap it up and let you go home. <laughs> I really appreciate being on your great podcast and I really do. And that's not shallow. I, I have an enormous respect for you and what you do and your wisdom in the world is Kohintok Agus Jas Bululat At long last Agur Mila Mila Mahad To my fear wech I'm a bit taken aback by that and uh, but I'm going to receive it in the way it was intended and be very grateful for it so thank you Michael and thank you for being here and thank you Nolik Hundadich Nolik Hundadich Michael's book All the Things Left Unsaid Confessions of Love and Regret is available now in all good bookshops and if you enjoyed this episode you might appreciate my conversation with Redemptorist priest and religious writer Tony Flannery from March 2021 You've been listening to Ready to Be Real Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.